This is the Theology Matters podcast. I'm here today with two special guests. Uh, let me introduce first the Reverend Dr. Kara Slade, and we're here today to talk about her book, which I'll introduce in a moment as well. And we're also here with Professor Andrew Davison, theologian based at Cambridge University. Let me say a bit about uh, Dr. Slade first. Uh, a native of Pensacola, Florida, cradle Episcopalian and lifelong Southerner, Kara holds a PhD in Christian theology and ethics from Duke University with research interests that include Karl Barth, Soren Kierkegaard, the ethics of science and technology, and medical ethics. Kara is a priest at Trinity Church in Princeton, New Jersey, which is right next door to CTI, and she's a friend of the center. Um, Andrew Davison has been on the podcast before, and he's the Starbridge Senior Lecturer in Theology and Natural Sciences fellow in theology and dean of chapel at Corpus Christi College at the University of Cambridge. So welcome to you both, and thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Josh. It's wonderful to be here. It's lovely to be with you. And we're here today to speak uh, about your book, Kara, The Fullness of Time, Jesus Christ, Science and Modernity, published in 2021. And uh, uh, Andrew is joining us so we can have a conversation between the three of us on this uh, fascinating book. Maybe just to get us started, Kara, speak a bit about um, your own background. You're both a scientist and a theologian, as is Andrew. We've got two here in the room who have deg uh, you know, degrees in both fields. And how did that background lead you to, to write this book, which engages science and theology? Yeah, so um, thanks for this question. Um, I would say I'm a, I'm a mechanical engineer and not a scientist. Engineers always get prickly about this, right? I say, oh, I'm, a, I'm an engineer. I work for a living. Um, but uh, um, I do have a background in, in engineering. I, um, I, I practiced uh, working for the federal government um, with NASA. And um, my engagement with the kind of science and theology conversation writ large um, I think took on the character that it did because um, <laughs> my transition from that world into theology was not smooth. Um, and because as somebody who was really involved with sort of practical applied, um, applied science and engineering um, in a governmental context, um, I, I got confronted in ways that I really wasn't prepared to deal with, with um, the ways that Christian practice um, or Christian, you know, being a Christian in the world um, bumps up against the world of technology in um, not always smooth ways. Um, and so um, I became very, very interested in this question. It's why I ended up going back to, to grad school and this, my ordination kind of happened. Um, I'm not sure how that happened, but it was, uh, uh, it was the Lord's doing and not my idea. Um, and so I'm, I've always been interested in um, how the conversation between science and theology can go um, if we acknowledge the fissures as well as the, um, the, the kind of agreements about you know, all truth being God's truth, right? Um, and those happen more on what I'd say maybe a, an applied or a moral level um, is really how I went about it in this book in the first instance, and then kind of took a step back to think about um, doctrine. So, 
thanks. And maybe speak a bit about the two figures who are in some ways the heroes of the book, uh, <laughs> Karl Barth and Soren Kierkegaard. And was it at Duke that you became very interested in them? And, and how did that happen? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and interestingly enough, I was introduced to both of them in the same semester. So, um, you know, first semester of seminary, first year of seminary, you know, take all the kind of required classes, right? It's pretty standard. Um, and then fall of my second year, I took um, a class uh, called Love in the Christian Tradition with Amy Laura Hall, where we read Kierkegaard's works of love, among other things, and then took the introductory BART uh, class with Willie James Jennings. And so I was reading both of these texts are simultaneously, right? Um, I was reading the Epistle to the Romans commentary by Bart. Um, I was reading works of love, uh, reading excerpts from the church dogmatics. Obviously, you can't do the whole thing in, in one semester, right? Um, but I think especially, um, you know, uh, Professor Jennings is very interested in Bart's doctrine of creation. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And as those things came together for me, um, it really changed the way that I thought about um, the centrality of Jesus and the implications of that for, for how we structure all of our knowing. Um, and also um, in, I think in, in uh, Dr. Hall's class especially, we talked a lot about um, assumptions about progress um, assumptions about you know, the way things are, um, how we know things, how do we know what the word love means, right, um, was a really famous day in class. Um, so I, you know, I, I always tell people that I got involved with Bart because he made me excited about being a Christian in a way that no other person did, no other uh, theological writer did. Um, I got involved with Kierkegaard because um, he knocks you off of your feet so profoundly in ways that end up being spiritually helpful, even though it's very uncomfortable at the time, right? Um, and so for me, I mean, it started with the kind of existentially life-changing um, experience with them. And, and then I thought, you know, I, I could happily spend the rest of my life reading these folks. Karl Barth began his career, you know, as you know, 10 years in pastoral ministry. So it strikes me, how does, does his theology, how does it relate to the, the the work you're doing as a priest in pastoral ministry, given the fact that he himself was always kind of oriented toward preaching and, and in the local congregation? Uh, it means so much to me. Um, and when I was finishing my dissertation, which, you know, then became this book, uh, I took a trip to to Basel, and then I drove to Soffenville uh, to see his church there, um, the, where he was when he wrote the the Romer brief. And it was such a profound, um, it was just a profound time for me. You know, you see the church there, and there was like one guy standing outside, like raking the leaves. Is obviously the the guy who volunteers to do this every week. Right? Um, my German wasn't good enough to strike up a decent conversation, but. Um, you know, Professor Jennings would always tell us that Bart's context there in Soffenville, preaching to a congregation of folks who were really struggling with the realities 
of their ordinary life. Um, this is where the epistle to the Romans came from. Um, it was based in the concern of speaking a true word of the active word of God to particular people in a particular place. Um, and I've always found that to be, I mean, it's certainly true here as well, that I think BART helps me to, um, to always remember um, who the, the acting subject of my preaching is. The acting subject is God. Um, you know, what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do. Um, and, uh, you know, some of my students who come to Trinity tease me about it a little bit. They're like, oh, you know, Mother Carrie, you always preach about what God does. And I said, well, that's, this is the point, y'all. This is the point. Um, and I think that, you know, Bart's conviction that theology is always, you know, for the church. Um, is tremendously important for me. And I think it's allowed me to make sense of my own vocation um, as a, a theologian who's operating in an ecclesial context. I have a Carl, few more questions. I'd like to yeah, let's go to Andrew. Yeah, that's that's right, exactly Carl, where I was going, Andrew. <laughs> Carl, you mentioned um, the commentary on Romans there, the Roman brief, yeah. uh, which was just a work that changed the face of theology in the 20th century. Uh, there's some nice coincidences here that you mentioned my college, Corpus Christi, at the beginning because of our clock, yes. but yes. also we're very proud that Sir Edwin Hoskins, who translated that into English and, and, and yes. unleashed it on the English world, English-speaking <laughs> world, um, was, was a predecessor of mine at, as fellow in, uh, in theology oh, wow. at Corpus. Um, you mentioned this clock that we've got, which- yeah, I hate um, it so much. <laughs> which is enormous and it's very prominent and it involves uh, basically a locust that um, pulls round the clock and it's called the chronophage, the, the time eater. Yeah. And you offer this um, chilling interpretation of it um, that uh, time is a threat and, and death is final. Yeah. Uh, I thought I'd give you a nice story that comes into its own once a year Mm -hmm. when we begin our joint Ash Wednesday service with the parish around the corner wow. by gathering in front of this clock and uh, and seeing the locust eating time. Oh, wow. One time of the year, it really does particularly yes. come to its own. But I wanted to ask you, how do you help your congregation and what do you think Bart offers for us to have a better view of time that isn't just a threat and, and yeah. death finality? <clears throat> well, I think that... Um, Folks struggle with time pastorally, I think, you know, so two predominant modes, and Bart is very explicit about this in Church Dogmatics 3, and I think it's very true, um, either through um, regret or nostalgia, okay, or a kind of being captured by the past, and that can have to do with, um, or a kind of being captured by um, traumatic experience or memory that is, you know, um, embedded uh, such that it it can can be a captivity for folks, um, and but then also um, on the other end, um, anxiety, which can also be a kind of utopianism, or you know, if we can just do X, Y, or Z, everything will be fixed. Um, but you know, I think there is so much you know, folks. Uh, 
folks can get entrapped in thoughts of the past or entrapped by the past in different ways, but folks can also get entrapped in um, both anxiety or what Bart calls a flight into the future. Um, so we can flee, um, we can't flee into the future, we can't flee into the past either, um, you know, especially I think in terms of a nostalgia or, um, you know, you know, anyone who's worked in a church can has heard this kind of thing. It was so much better when um, Father So-and-so was here, um, you know, that, that things were great in a previous age um, can be one way that that works or that, um, you know, I can't stop thinking about this thing that I did or this thing that somebody did to me. Um, and so what I was really trying to get at um, in my book was to try to create a framework for understanding how Jesus, um, as the Lord of time, can free us from both of those situations um, and also frees us from um, our desire to control both of those situations, right? Um, to control the past in order to create a kind of a story for the future or to control um, to control our destiny somehow. And that's how it gets you know, gets tangled up in science. But certainly, I think both anxiety and regret is everywhere. Right? That's part of the human condition. One of your great themes is the contemporaneity of Christ, if yeah. that's yeah. how I pronounce it. Um, Christ is our contemporary, or perhaps better, us as his contemporary. Yeah. Uh, and I know some Roman Catholic friends who are very keen on this and the idea of the encounter with Christ. Um, yeah. They belong to a, a movement particularly influenced by Luigi Giussani and it's all about encounter and I think there's something maybe a bit Jesuit there about meditating on the yeah. Gospels and encountering him there. Uh, I know for other people it's more a sense of a back and forth relationship in prayer. Yeah. Uh, I think though some people have struggled with this. You know, They revere Christ, they see him as their Lord and teacher and savior and all the rest. But what it means for him to be contemporaneous in this sense could be a bit more difficult to understand. And I wonder what you, what Bart might have as, a, or you might have as an insight to help <laughs> understand what that actually looks like on the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, a lot in a lot of this, I'm I'm actually influenced by Kierkegaard here, and especially um, in his uh, uh, philosophical fragments. Um, and uh, Johannes Climacus, where he's he's you know the the question of Lessing's ditch or what you know what separates us from the disciples, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, can we can we bridge that gap somehow between the apostolic witness to Christ and our own? Um, and you know, Kierkegaard again and again and again will use this phrase, the moment, the moment. And the moment is a thing that happens now, um, kind of a moment of um, being apprehended by Jesus and also apprehending him. Uh, and um, I think that can also be sacramental in character. And certainly then you can understand why it's a kind of a Catholic, um, a lot of Catholic folks might be drawn to that. Um I think it's also important for me because it's something that I struggle have struggled with myself, right? I mean, Jesus is great as an idea, but as um, 
but what happens when Jesus actually meets us where we are um, can be very alarming. <laughs> it certainly was is for me. Um, but um, I think that um, our tendency, our modern tendency to keep Jesus at a remove from us is it is part of the kind of modern difficulty that we have with um, well, with the the place where theology and church and culture meet. Um, and so I I think it's always important to emphasize the ways that um, that God is active in Jesus Christ now. Um, that this is not only a historical, you know, an event back there, but this is something here. You know, you can see, um, <laughs> I always try to catch people up on this because uh, you, sometimes you'll see church people say, you know, people will post memes or whatever. You know, Jesus was a socialist. And I said, well, you know, first of all, whatever about the socialism, but the, my real problem is with Jesus was, right? Um, you know, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever is kind of the verse around which my, my book revolves. Um, and that's also what uh, Hebrews 13, 8, um, where Bart draws his kind of writings on time out of Hebrews 13, 8, which is very different from the way most people do it, right? Because a lot of folks will do Genesis 1, right, in the beginning. Um, but he wants to start from a very different place. Um, and I'll also say, talking about Ignatian, um, Ignatian exercises, and Josh, you can just edit this however you want. Um, <laughs> um, I, I had a spiritual director in, in North Carolina when I was in graduate school. Um, and one time I, uh, oh, I was just complaining about my prayer life. Oh, my prayer life is terrible and I feel so distant from God and blah, 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 you know. And she was 70 year old sister um, and led people in the uh, Ignatian exercises, among other things. And <laughs> she said, I'll never forget it. She said, well, Kara, do you have any other relationship in your life where if you didn't speak to the other person, you would think it would be okay between you? And I thought, fair, <laughs> right? Fair enough. Um, and I think that also helped me um, understand the presence of God in Christ with us always. Andrew, do you want to follow up with some other questions or? I've got a, a group of questions to ask about science. Yes. Yeah, that's kind of where I was going too. So maybe you go ahead with that. Yeah. Science emerges from your book as an ambivalent force in the world. And you go out of your way to talk about it as being God's gift. And mm -hmm. particularly at the end, you're finishing the book during the pandemic. People, you're looking yeah. forward to a vaccine and you recognize it's going to save yeah. lots of lives. I would say, and tell me if I'm wrong, it's not so much science that's the problem. It's the idea of science applied outside of the domain of scientific inquiry when it becomes a substitute or yeah. even a, a particular foundation for sociology, ethics, philosophy, that kind of thing. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's that's my primary concern is, um, and you know, historically on into today, um, 
the drift of scientific authority into um, a kind of an anthropology or a moral anthropology or politics, right? All of these things going together um, that then explains what it means to be human on levels that science on its face or scientific research on its face can't really do. Um, I'm also interested in, um, you know, and I think that as, as Willie Jennings says in the, I think it's in the preface that, um, you know, scientists are also, you know, human creatures like all of us. Um, and that, um, in doing science, you don't somehow acquire a kind of omniscient moral authority or kind of omniscient knowing. Um, and so I think, you know, I'm not interested in this kind of, you know, whatever science denialism or, you know, what, what these kinds of things are not, is not my concern, but I do, I think I would like to, fo for folks to ask, um, you know, better questions about when, um, scientific writing or scientific figures are claiming, you know, what authority are they speaking from? And, you know, this was just everywhere during the, the height of the pandemic, right? You would um, drive down the street here in Princeton and you would see like the little signs by the side of the road that would say things like, well, honk if you believe in science. And I just always said, you know, what does that mean, <laughs> right? What does it mean to believe in science? Um, and, uh, and that's also a thing I'm concerned with is the kind of a reification of science into a, a kind of block of authority that descends from the sky, decontextualized, right? Um, and, uh, and I think that's also important. I, um, before I got off of Twitter recently, one of my favorite follows was MC Hammer. If you remember, um, you know, you, you can't touch this. Well, MC Hammer is actually a very keen reader of philosophy of science, which you would never know, but, but he is. And I will never forget um, one tweet that he had where he says, you know, when you measure, include the measurer, right? When you measure, include the measurer. And um, I think that's a really concise way of reminding ourselves that, and certainly, you know, um, modern physics knows this, right? You can't, um, you can't separate out the act of measurement from the measurement itself. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that the church might be faced with a, a challenge that faces in two directions at the same time, that there is important work to be done in standing up for human excellence and expertise and mm -hmm. Uh, just that it's, it's not good for the human community to neglect what the scientists have got to tell us in one direction. And we've seen plenty of that as well during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, just not letting go and challenge this sense of, um, of just authority in one domain, giving you unimpeachable authority in another. And I thought that one of the most terrifying things about your book and useful was the history. I, I do think science and religion questions are unfailingly brought into better relief by attention to history. And you talked just about the way in which scientists again and again had put forward a really ruthless view of a compassionless view of human society based on, on Darwin. Mm -hmm. 
you know, some pretty big names there as well. Yes. Sometimes going as far as eugenics, but quite often sort of eugenics light. Yes. And, and I, I thought that was one of the most useful things of your, about your book. And I wonder if you could summarize that. Yeah, um, this is also something that I <laughs> I learned from from Amy Laura Hall first, and I'll give her the the credit for this. But she was the first person who actually, in a class, asked us to look at what was actually in the book that was at the heart of the Scopes trial. Yes, which is Civic Biology, which is a horrible book. I mean, it contains a lot of really, again, like you say, ruthless things about you know, the purification of a people and, um, you know, just really, um, you know, not a hierarchy of races. As I remember. A hi yes, a hierarchy of races. And so, um, you know, we can't uncomplicatedly um, draw the story of the Scopes trial as, you know, good science versus bad William Jennings Bryan, um, you know, um, there are some points that William Jennings Bryan had that are worth paying attention to. Um, and so um, I think that, and again, you know, um, I think especially within our own tradition, within the Anglican tradition, we're very, very anxious to say we're not like those other Christians, right, by which we're always talking about American, what we call, I'm making scare quotes, creationists. Um, people who read uh, Genesis 1 in a certain way um, and um, as a kind of a scientific text. Um, and, you know, in doing so, I think that we can jump into the other, uh, the other side so enthusiastically that we don't ask the right questions um, about how folks who... Um, think about evolutionary biology really, really quickly jump over into a politics. Um, and, uh, you know, there's part of my book that's just basically repeatedly pointing, look, there's a politics, there's a politics. He made a politics mm -hmm. um, because, um, you know, you pick up something like, a, um, I don't know, you know, an E.O. Wilson book and you say, okay, here's this really famous evolutionary biologist who's going to tell us about, you know, the meaning of being human. Um, and it gets kind of wild towards the end, uh, the meaning of human existence. And so, um, you know, I think that once you learn to look out for it, you can be a lot more aware of what's helpful and what's not. I thought one of the most beautiful things in the book actually was when you're talking about Wilson, who's an extraordinarily distinguished writer on um, yeah. insect evolution, particularly, yeah. and, and, and uh, and sociality, uh, but he talks about having this view where we just see time speeded up enough to get the big picture, the evolutionary picture, and then the individual becomes unimportant, and it's a story of the triumph of the strong over the weak. Yeah. And you you end by saying that Wilson is giving us a you might say a god's eye view yeah. of of the story of evolution, except that God doesn't have that kind of God's eye view. Right. That the story of, of Christ is a concern for every individual. And uh, and I thought that was a, a beautiful transition at the end. Maybe you could say a little bit more about how particularly Christ features in that uh, disavowal of just general stories. Yeah. Um, 
Well, the first part of it is that certainly, um, you know, again, getting back to the idea of an encounter with Christ, um, you know, Jesus encounters us one one to one as we um, we encounter each other one to one as Josh, as Andrew, as Kara, and not as a kind of undifferentiated blob of living creatures, right? Um, because creatureliness um, is, you know, in a an absolute sense, you know, through, you know, through him, all things were made through the second person of the Trinity, all things were made. And so this logic of um, creation and incarnation just can't be pulled apart from each other. And what it means for for God to become incarnate in a particular um, a particular human at a particular time of Israel, um, and and that that should change how we think about God seeing us, and and really to start taking seriously verses like, well, His eyes on the sparrow, right? Um, and you know, consider the lilies, and we want to think, oh, this is this is horribly, you know, completely naive, um, but to really take it seriously about the preciousness. And the belovedness of each person um, in, you know, in Christ. I have um, I have a wonderful icon in my, it's in my kitchen. It used to be uh, in my other house. I had it sort of down near the baseboard so that my dog could see it. Um, but it's an icon of, um, it's, it's Jesus, right? Or the figure of Jesus um, as the son, um, ordering the creation of it's the birds and the fishes right so um but you see all of the the birds and the fishes leaping um the fishes leaping out of the water in praise of you know in praise of the word um and it's just such a i just think that's such a beautiful image of um the relatedness of god to creation in christ um which is a you know a relatedness on the ground and not, you know, up in the, up in the air somehow. Um, and I think that that should make all the difference. And it also makes a difference in terms of when we ask ourselves, what is the logic of, what is the most inner logic of creation? Um, you know, Bart talks about, um, you know, creation as the external basis of the covenant of grace and, um, and, that that at its deepest level, the logic of creation, you know, God's desire for it is to be um, love, mercy, um, you know, the blessedness of the meek, um, instead of the survival of the strongest, um, and that should change completely how we think about our relationships with each other, our relationships with the. The created world, how we think about, you know, um, the exploitation of creation or extractive practices. Um, you know, what if we took that, um, you know, uh, Philippians 2 kind of um, picture seriously when we're thinking about creation um, from biology to rocks to trees to whatever? I think uh, we can probably move on to another, uh, maybe a final question I wanted to ask Kara, which was just, what do you have in mind for a next book? Or is it too soon? <laughs> is it too soon to uh, ask or even maybe a next article? No, well, it's, I, I do have a next article that is, 
it's percolating and I need to start working on it because it's um it's gonna be due before I know it. I'm um writing a little chapter for um Mark Lin Lindsay on providence and time. Um so I'm interested to delve a little more deeply into theologies of providence um and <clears throat> how how that works with the work that I've done on time. So that's that's kind of a short term thing. Longer term, I actually um I'm hoping that um, that my next project is going to be really more focused for um, for for church people. So I would like to do um, a commentary on the Nicene Creed that would work as a kind of an adult teaching and discussion resource for I think for Episcopalians especially. There are a number of wonderful kind of little creed um, commentaries out there, but not for um, for this particular context, and I would really like to to do something with that for um, for the church that I'm, you know, that I serve. So um, it's a little bit of a different direction, but I think it'll be fun. So we'll see. Absolutely, we'll see. Look forward to reading that and discussing mm -hmm. it further. Uh, so Kara Slade, the book is "The Fullness of Time: Jesus Christ, Science, and Modernity." Thank you so much for being on the podcast, and thanks to Andrew as well. Well, thank you so much, Josh and Andrew. It's wonderful to talk with y'all.